Hello, welcome to Sharp Angles Podcast. I am Dan Pizzuta, joined here for a NFL Draft preview. Rich Rebar, today, Ryan McChrystal uh, is joining us. We're uh, jumping around. Uh, we're a couple of days away from NFL Draft kicking off. So uh, before we really dive into everything, how are we doing today? We're doing good, man. It's uh, it, it's We're in the 11th hour of the draft, and we're finally going to get all of this jargon behind us and we're gonna have actual players go to teams uh and that's why uh we brought ryan on to kind of sift through some of the noise that's been going on the last two weeks when it's been heavy uh tear down cj stroud season now will levis is uh projected to go number one in odds which mean nothing which means nothing but uh a lot of chaos going on yeah it's a lot of fun i mean it's my favorite time of year i know some people <laughs> feel the complete opposite but i love this week so you actually like this the week leading up, you are you are in. As someone who has d- done all the mocks, has been uh, for the website going in, trying to decipher all of the, the media leaks and draft rumors and, and see what's real, you actually are enjoying this week. Yeah, I love it because this is when we start to be able to piece together some actual information. Like all of our mock drafts up to this point, every single one of us doing mock drafts, it's 100% guesses. Like we kind of have an idea about what teams need. We kind of have an idea about the trends that GMs have, like the types of players they like at each position, but we're just putting those puzzle pieces together. There's really no information other than like, if you try to piece together some stuff about like draft visits and whatnot, but that's, that's really tricky. But now that we're getting this close, this is where teams are actually finalizing their boards. A lot of teams either maybe met on Friday or maybe are met on Monday and are starting to actually finalize their boards. And then whoever was in that room talks to people. And so there are certain beat writers who get good information. There are other you know national reporters who will get good information. And so, you know, especially if you follow those guys closely over the years, you can, even if you're not the one directly getting the information, you can start to piece together some of the stuff that's out there and sort of sift through those rumors. And so that, that's what I find really fun about this week is actually now we've got some actual puzzle pieces to put together as opposed to just like kind of looking at depth charts and team needs and guessing we're, we're actually using some information now. Yeah. And that's fun. And that's one of the like reasons we, we have you on and why following your stuff throughout the draft season is so good because I think you like, you are one of the best at figuring out what information is real as we get to this point. Like I said, you've been kind of digging into all that stuff uh, on the website through a, a draft rumors post. You've you know been putting up a, a mock draft every week and like, it's very clear. You are someone who is able to kind of take that information and put it into something actionable. You know, if you look at the, uh, the, the huddle report, of the the mock draft scores you're in, in the top five over the past uh five years so uh, you you know what you're doing which is uh, uh which is great so we're gonna uh pick your brain uh, a little bit for what we can be uh, expecting for this draft coming up uh, before we get into that we'll talk a little bit about you know the the big nfl news uh, of the aaron Rodgers trade obviously we've kind of been waiting on this for a while it finally gets traded um it ends up being for uh, Rogers and what I think we'll we'll talk about here is like I, I wrote about the Aaron Rodgers trade and kind of what the Jets might be getting for a you know soon to be forty year old quarterback. He's a quarterback that kind of needs more structure than he has in the past. He's not really the kind of guy who's going to create for himself. 
and he needs that structure. Last year with the Packers, he had less trust in the structure than I think we've, we've ever seen from him. It ended up being like one of his, he had negative EPA on the season, uh, his one of his worst seasons uh, from a clean pocket. Uh, and that is uh, a little concerning, but then you look at what the Jets have done. They created everything they have done to create a structure that Rodgers should be able to trust with Nathaniel Hackett as uh, offensive coordinator. You bring in Alan Lazard. Uh, you have a, a Garrett Wilson, who's obviously very good. So we'll see what happens there. But the, the interesting thing is we kind of wondered what the compensation uh, was going to be. It ends up being, you know, quite a bit. And I think the, the big thing is the the 2024 pick. That's a conditional second that turns into a first if he plays 65% of the snaps in 2023. And like that's we should be looking at that as like a conditional first that turns into a second if he doesn't play, because if he's not playing 65% mm-hmm. of the snaps this year, like something terribly went wrong. Uh, and this is really a disaster. So it's likely going to be a first pick in 2024. I kind of wondered what the 2023 draft capital would be. Uh, there was a lot of push for it and getting the 13th overall pick from the jets. Uh, apparently that was the original uh, asking price. I think uh, Albert Breer uh, was writing about that yesterday for sports illustrated. Uh, they kind of backed out of that, but ended up getting a, a little more in terms of the full draft capital. So it ends up being the pick swap for 13 and 15. Um, the jets also get uh, pick 170. Then the Packers get pick 42, which was uh, acquired from the Jets in the Elijah Moore trade. Uh, then there's pick uh, 207, which is you know a, a later pick. But I, the, the interesting thing that's going to go for us right now is that pick swap. It gets the Packers, um, you know, up up to spots where they're potentially going to be able to you know jump some guys, maybe be in a position for a wide receiver or an offensive tackle maybe. So uh, Ryan, while you're looking into this, this is the first kind of, you know, the shakeup of, of the draft uh, during draft week. Um, well, what what are you taking for this, this pick swap and what it might mean for the first round? Yeah, I found the pick swap to be really interesting because if you look at like what the value of that swap is, if I were the Packers, I would have just asked for a later pick, you know, even if you could only get like a fourth round pick or something in the future, given the state of the franchise right now, they're not competing for a Super Bowl right now. Having an extra pick certainly seems like it would be more valuable. So it does sort of make me want to read into it a little bit and think like, okay, so who did they jump and what does that mean? And so they basically jumped the Patriots and the Jets and both the Patriots and the Jets have been pretty strongly linked to offensive linemen, the Packers, it's been a little bit harder to figure out what direction they're going to go with their pick, but offensive line is certainly in the mix. So it kind of makes me want to lean towards that and say, and think that they now recognize there's a really good chance there's a run on offensive linemen. If they stayed at 15, basically everybody that you could reasonably justify at that pick could be off the board if they stayed at 15. So that definitely feels like a, a possible reason why they felt like that was worth it instead of getting an extra later pick at some point in the future doing that pick swap right now might have been the best option for them because it really increases the chances of them getting an offensive lineman who can come in and protect Jordan Love right away. So that has now made me lean offensive line for the Packers pretty strongly with that new pick. Yeah, so that's pretty interesting because it, it kind of seems like when you're going into this, and I think we'll kind of jump in here, it, it, that was going to be one of my questions for you of, some of the positional runs that we see, and we do tend to see them uh, a bit, especially with uh, a draft that you have a lot of guys that are kind of grouped together a a little bit when you kind of look at some rankings. So do you think 
offensive tackle uh, or just offensive line in general. And we do get, you know, the tackles. You can see, you know, there are some people say you can, you know, bump Peter Skaronsky into guard, but, you know, generally viewed as, as a tackle. Um, do you think that's the first big run uh, we kind of might see uh, in the first round? Yeah, I think it's really shaping up that way. I think Paris Johnson seems to have really separated himself and is almost certainly going to be the first guy off the board and then probably followed by Broderick Jones. And I think the reason those guys have separated themselves out is everybody views them as potential franchise left tackles. Like those are the two studs of the class. And then you've got Dale Wright and um, Skaransky, as you mentioned, like those are probably the next guys off the board. And they're a little bit harder to figure out in terms of, I think every team is going to view them a little bit differently. Some right's going to be a right tackle for a lot of teams. Skaronsky might be also. It sounds like Skaronsky is a guard on most draft boards, though. That's been the latest reporting. So every team is going to view those guys a little bit differently. But once you get the two left tackles off the board, then suddenly you just you're not going to be as picky. Like if you feel like you need to upgrade the offensive line, you're going to take it where you can get it. So a team like the Packers. Yeah, they'd probably like to bring in a guy that could eventually play left tackle for them. But if Wright's the only guy that's there for them, they're probably going to be happy to plug that in because it's still going to be an upgrade for them. So, yeah, I think I think those guys, they're all going to come off the board pretty early. And that's really the only position that I can really see there being a true run on. We could see the quarterbacks come off the board early, obviously. But because that is such like there are so few teams, like when quarterbacks come off the board, I don't really – I don't really consider that a run. Like it's not like like every team, nobody has all four quarterbacks, you know, ranked in their top ten, right? So like, right. when one guy comes off the board, most of the other teams are either frustrated because the one guy they wanted is gone, or they're totally fine with it because the guy they wanted didn't. With, with tackles, it's a little bit different. There's probably quite a few teams that are thinking like, all right, we prefer this guy, but if the fourth guy in our list is there, we're still happy to take him. So I, I would think that's the run that we see. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And usually those runs are, like you said, the, there's not usually a quarterback run, um, but we'll kind of see that. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the quarterbacks a little bit. Uh, the other potential run, if there is one, um, and it kind of seems like you might not think there's quite as much, would potentially be wide receiver. Um, usually that's kind of a, uh, a position we, we do see again, and it's kind of these positions that where you're using multiple guys, um, you know, you can figure out how to use different guys, uh, in, in an offense. It's easier to do a tackle wide receiver than it is, you know, for, for a quarterback. So as we look at this wide receiver class, obviously it's not as top heavy as, uh, we've seen in the past class, especially like the, the very recent classes where there have been you know true number one guys that we've kind of seen could potentially like just come in and immediately be stars. Uh, but there is, I, but what does make the, the wide receiver class interesting. And we, you know, we did a whole podcast on it uh, two weeks ago. is how many different kinds of guys there are. So it is a, a very much kind of pick your style type of thing of what some of these teams might prefer. Uh, so do you see that as something that could potentially uh, happen maybe in, in the back half of the first round? Uh, or are you not uh, thinking there are going to be too many wide receivers uh, who go? I'd be surprised if we had more than three. You you could certainly, if the first guy comes off the board a little bit early, like maybe somebody sneaks in at the very, maybe the Chiefs, if they stay put at the very end, maybe they take like the fourth guy. But I also wouldn't be stunned if it were one. Like if only Jackson Smith and Jigga comes off the board, that doesn't shock me. He's the only one that I think is a lock. 
because even though he's not quite in that top tier, like he, he's not like his teammates last year, Olave and Wilson, who looked like they were, you know, pretty clearly number one receivers in an offense and pretty quickly proved that during their rookie years. Jackson Smith and Jigba, he had, although he's not big, there's no questions about his size. He's he's built like an NFL receiver. He's certainly not a slot only. I know that's been thrown out sometimes because he played in the slot a lot, but well, he was on the same team as Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave. So that, you know, they got to fit those guys in somewhere. Um, but he's big enough to play on the outside. There's no questions about that. And that is a question for some of the others. The other factor with Smith and Jigba that I think separates himself is look at the receivers coming out of Ohio State. Like there's a ton of confidence in the work that Brian Hartline's done, even going back to Terry McLaurin, who played kind of a simplistic role in Urban Meyer's offense. And that was the big knock on him coming out was like, well, like he's got some talent, but like he kind of caught a lot of screens. But that was the first sign that Brian Hartline was building something special there because he came into the league and he was like, yeah, I may not have done it at Ohio State, but I sure learned it on the practice field because he was ready right away. And then Olave and Wilson. So I think there's just so much confidence in Smith and Jigba being that guy who's gotten elite coaching from Brian Hartline at Ohio State. He's going to be ready right away. And then how many receivers enter the league where their biggest strengths are top tier hands, top tier route running and fail. Those guys don't fail. So if you draft Jackson Smith and Jigba, you're getting a good receiver. Maybe he's never more than your number two receiver, but he's going to be good. But then you look at the other guys. A lot of them came from air raid offenses like Quentin Johnson. He's a bigger receiver that might be attractive, but he very much played a air raid offense kind of role. He was catching a lot of screens and doing damage after the catch and he was pretty good in that role, but is that going to translate as easily to the NFL? He's because he's not blazing fast. You know, it's not like he's Jalen Waddle who was playing a similar role at Alabama catching a lot of screens, but it was a much easier to say, yeah, he had a limited rat tree, but when you're as fast as Jalen Waddle, it's easier to see that that's going to continue in the NFL. That's, that's not Quentin Johnson. So, and then you've got Jordan Addison, who's tiny and not blazing fast. Same thing with Josh Downs. Like, there's just a lot of questions. It's much easier to come up with a reason why one of those guys fails compared to Jackson Smith and Jigba. So I think that's why Smith and Jigba is the only lock. And the other guys, it's really going to be team by team, I think. What it, I could certainly see a case that any team could make for one of those other guys being the number two wide receiver and worthy of a first-round pick, especially since some, a lot of those teams at the back end of the first round are contenders and they might want to plug a hole right away, the Chiefs obviously being one of them. But – it's just it's hard to guess like who fits in perfectly because there are so many more questions with each of those receivers. So I, I think it's much more un, I think it's not likely that there's a run, even if you know, we may see Jackson Swift and Jacob go 12, then maybe Addison goes like 20, 21, maybe Zay Flowers goes 31. I, like we could see three or four, but I think it's more of like a spread out thing. No one's gonna panic. And I, I doubt we're gonna see like four guys and five picks or something like that. Right, absolutely. And it goes back to like when Rich and I were talking about the wide receivers, like kind of after that first big tier uh, of guys, uh, a lot of them are kind of pushed together and you kind of see. So I think potentially the second round uh, could maybe be where you like you start to see the run a little bit where teams are want to get maybe, you know, that that Jalen Hyatt. Uh, or, or that type of uh, receiver. And, and that's probably where like a, a Josh Downs goes uh, a little bit. And we kind of see uh, those type of guys that sneak in there. So if we look at uh, DraftKings right now, 
uh, total wide receivers drafted in the first round. These are both at you know minus 115, so you're not really getting any juice to, to either. Uh, but it's it's set at three and a half. Um, so you would potentially lean under. Um, I'm certainly leaning under. Yeah. I think that's probably the safest bet. And I think the reason why the number has been high is because those are the players that everybody's heard about. Right. So like we've heard a lot more discussions, the first mock drafts that came out, you know, Josh Downs was in a lot of them, you know, like Jalen Hyatt was in a lot of them because like, those are the players that everyone's familiar with. And the closer and closer we get to the draft, when you have a class that's not as strong as we've seen in the past couple of years, now we've gra- the closer we get to the draft, the fewer and fewer wide receivers you're seeing in mock drafts because it's, we're starting to figure out why those guys were pushed up, and it was really just name recognition. So yeah, I'm still I'm still leaning under on that. All right, let's get to the big position then. Where are these quarterbacks going? What <laughs> what's what's happening here? I think we. And we're fairly locked in on Bryce Young going number one. Uh, and then it seems it's more open than maybe we've ever seen in a quarterback class that has this many quarterbacks, right? Like we've, we had a question of what the quarterbacks were going to do last year uh, because the quarterbacks weren't viewed as very good. But when we have at least four guys, potentially a fifth going in the first round, um, we still don't really know where these guys are going to go after it falls after Carolina, most likely taking Bryce young at one. Yeah, this is tricky. I always don't quite know how to answer quarterbacks questions because it's so specific to what each team wants that I I never want to sound overconfident because, you know, I could say, you know, the league doesn't really like this guy and be a hundred percent right with 31 of the teams. But if it that one long. team loves Will Levis, they could take him third overall <laughs> or fourth, overall, you know? So I feel very confident that m- the majority of the league only thinks there's two first round quarterbacks in this class, but could someone get desperate and make it three, four, maybe even five? Yeah. I, I can't rule that out. The question, the biggest question is just the Colts. I think like, what, what are they going to do? Cause they hold the keys now. I think, obviously, you said Bryce Young is going to be the number one overall. All signs point to Houston not taking a quarterback at two. Maybe they do later, but at two, it certainly sounds like they're not going to do that. Then what do the Colts do? Do they like Stroud? It, there's been a lot of smoke around the fact that they like Will Levis, that they may lean that route. And so it sounds like kind of leaning towards the Colts doing uh, going the Will Levis route and shocking us all with either the third or fourth pick depending if they want to trade up and then it becomes a a huge guessing game. Like, let's just say we plug in. I mean, we could even say just plug in Bryce Young at one, plug in the second quarterback to the Colts without even trying to pin down who it is. I think it's really tricky to figure out where the next guy goes because those two, because Levis and Stroud are so different. There's probably a scenario where the Colts make one decision and then uh, the other guy comes off the board pretty quickly because somebody wants to try to trade up. You know, Seattle at number five, they're really active in trades. If they don't, they're not thrilled about the defensive player that's available to them. Maybe they make a trade and someone moves up for a quarterback and we could end up with three guys in the top five. But if the wrong, if the Colts take the wrong quarterback for the guys behind them, I think it's very possible that we see someone start to slide quite a bit. And then it's basically we're looking at the Raiders and Titans at that point. Like if they get past whoever gets past the Colts, I think those are the two 
potential landing spots. But I would be really shocked because those quarterbacks are very different if both of those teams wanted either one of those guys. So we could come up with a scenario where maybe both of those teams are in agreement on Stroud, the Colts take Stroud, and now Levis starts to fall, or the reverse could happen. And then it starts to really get crazy. Basically, that's a long way of saying, I don't know, but I think we can point to Texans take a quarterback, Colts take a quarterback, either the Raiders or Titans. I guess I would say I'm kind of 50 on a third quarterback going to one of those teams. I don't think both of them are going to take a quarterback. Just the odds that they both like different guys, that seems unlikely. The guy that I haven't mentioned, obviously, is Anthony Richardson. And I'm feeling more and more confident as we get closer to the draft that he's going to slide. Certainly out of the top 15, at that point, you enter a stage where maybe somebody wants to move up to ensure they get him. But with a player that risky, it wouldn't shock me if he falls. I don't think he's going to have a fall like Desmond Ritter and Malik Willis did last year, where we were thinking that they had a first-round chance and then fall away the third round. I think Richardson, just from a raw tool standpoint, is ahead of either of those guys. He's even ahead of Malik Willis, who obviously is very toolsy as well. But Richardson's not another level, just looking at the raw talent. So I don't think he would ever have that kind of a fall. But I think a fall out of the first round is possible. Trying to look at the teams at the back end of the first round as, as to who would pull the trigger. The Bucks get brought up sometimes. It could be them. But look at the state of that franchise. Look at the coaching staff in front office. Those guys are probably feeling a little bit nervous about investing in a guy who probably isn't going to really be ready to win for three years. Are they going to be there in three years? That's got to be in the back of their mind. Seattle is a possibility. But Pete Carroll, you know, he's got job security for as long as he wants it, I would think. But does he want to be around long enough to see Anthony Richardson turn the corner? That's a big question mark. The one team on the back end of the first round that I think makes the most sense to me to pull pull the trigger on Anthony Richardson would be the Vikings. Knowing that that front office is very analytically minded, knowing that they have absolutely no pressure to play him in year one because they do have Kirk Cousins, that could be a team where they, they have the luxury of sitting him and those analytically minded teams, they they love upside a lot. So they could see the value in taking a late first round pick on a guy who talent wise is obviously top five raw talent and saying that just the, the discrepancy between ceiling and investment with the was it 23rd pick that they have, that could be worth it. So I would think that if Richardson's falling far, that could potentially be the spot. But if it gets past the Vikings, then I think we'll see him on day. Uh, on day two, he'll be probably be sitting there. And that's, I, I think that that's well within the realm of possibility, even though we've seen him in the top five of most mock drafts. As we get closer to the draft day, it's looking more and more like he's going to fall because, wh- like, where's the smoke around him? Is, has there been a single rumor connecting him to any team? I don't, I don't think we've heard that. We've heard it with everybody else. There's all kinds of, you know, it happens every year. We hear, oh, so-and-so coach, like this quarterback coach is obsessed with this guy or, you know, th- this this team loves, you know, like we're hearing with the Colts and Will Levis lately. You know, we're hearing like, oh, the Mannings love him. They're going to be in Ursay's ear. They're, they're going to love Will Levis. We hear those types of rumors about all the quarterbacks every year, and we haven't heard a peep about Anthony Richardson, which is very suspiciously similar to what we heard with uh, Malik Willis a year ago. And look where he went. <laughs> so... I'm definitely thinking that's a possibility. Yeah, that seems the uh, kind of wild where it looked like, you know, he was potentially a top three pick 
like a, a month ago, especially coming after uh, that combine, still we look at, and you were kind of on top of this, even just kind of falling out of, of the first round, or uh, sorry, falling out of uh, the top five, uh, because I think when, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, his, his draft prop still sits at uh, four and a half, uh, but there is, it's plus 255 to the under uh, right now. Whereas a couple of weeks ago, I think when you were kind of on top of this, I uh, wrote this up for the site. It was, I think, what, plus a hundred for over four and a half. Yep. Uh, so there, there's been uh, quite a shift there. And obviously, like we kind of look at these markets and they're reacting a lot to the media reports and they don't know as much about the draft as kind of when we look at a, a Vegas line for you know, a game, they're much more in tune of how the points are going to play out in a game on Sunday than they are being in the, the rooms and knowing what these the guys are going to do. But it is interesting when we do see just kind of a gradual uh, type of, of movement like that for, for someone like Richardson, who just kind of seems like he's probably not going at top five right now. Yeah, I mean, that that's probably been my favorite prop of the season. If it's still available, I still like it. I think the odds of him going in the top four, given how much pretty realistic smoke there is around the Colts' interest in Levis, I think the odds of Richardson sneaking in the top four are very close to zero at this point. In fact, I would be very surprised if he even went in the top 10. So if that's, if that, I haven't looked in the last day or so, but if that prop is still available, I definitely like the over on Levis's uh, draft slot at four and a half. Yeah. Rich, if we get Anthony Richardson heading to somewhere like uh, either a Tampa Bay or a Minnesota, is that because because we talked about him quite a bit when we went into uh, our our quarterback? Does that make us more excited for what he could potentially be as a, a quarterback in his development, or would we rather see the the high draft capital, but for maybe a team that's a little worse? It's kind of tough because it's, uh, you know, if he has the high draft capital for us from like, from like a fantasy stance, it's good because it's going to be feet to the fire of playing him like earlier than expected. But if he goes into the back of the first or even goes in the second round, it would be kind of a situation where he'd be more of a, a weight and hands off. It would really hurt his stock from that stance. But, you know, from a development stance, I think it doesn't really change a lot because I think what you're getting from Anthony Richardson is what we've known all along, right? And it's what and it's what the league kind of always has shown that they are always going to treat passing first, right? Like your passing floor and your passing ceiling are always going to be taken into account firsthand in today's NFL. Even though what he does well, like sack avoidance, like it's like teams aren't really looking at that kind of stuff, right? They aren't looking at like, oh, if our quarterbacks get get sacked, like our our odds of scoring decrease, you know, to what. Uh, two thirds, you know, on a drive, they're not looking at that, those kind of things and saying like, oh, wow, he actually has a higher floor for our offense because he's an EPA cheat code, right? Like he's not taking sacks and he can run even though he's throwing, you know, incompletions. It's like major league baseball and like strikeouts, right? Like there was a barrier that took like decades for him to get over, like, man, strikeouts are terrible. And then eventually they realized, you know, what's cool home runs. Home runs are really cool. Uh, and it's, it's okay. And that's why like the ink, like, cause it, when you're watching Anthony Richardson, he has a lot of strikeouts. He makes a lot of plays where you're like, ooh, whoa, what were you swinging at there, man? That pitch was three and a half feet outside, right? Like those kind of throws. Like, man, how did you miss that throw? 
But what he does well in terms of avoiding sacks and making plays with his legs are going to always put an offense in a, uh, a higher floor situation than assumed. It's, we're li- dealing this with literally Lamar Jackson right now, this offseason, and all the stuff orbiting him, right? Uh, but you see that they're going to value passing first from a league stance. And that's what's always going to hurt him. And, you know, I was on with Ryan five weeks ago, and we talked about this. He took a bunch of heat from early mock drafts. He never had Anthony Richardson going this high. And they're like, you're an idiot for doing this. And he's been on it from day one uh, and on this train. And the same thing as last year. It's like if the league just values passing to such a high degree that it's easy to say like these guys will slide. Like I said, maybe not to the third round, maybe not to pick 75. But when you're feeder to the fire as an NFL head coach, an NFL GM, especially if you're like a Colts, like a first time and uh, a first time head coach, and you're really getting into bed with this guy that, you know, could go one or two ways. I mean, it's tough to, to, to make that decision. And that's always what, kind of think was driving this uh to this point the other factor here i think like from an evaluation standpoint and i've i've gone back and thought a lot about josh allen because obviously he got brought up last year with the malik willis and again with anthony richardson as these like flawed guys and you obviously want to point to josh allen because it's worked out that he obviously got a lot of criticism from myself and many other people and you know, who thought the bills were crazy for taking a guy and so I, i've gone back and taking a closer look at the Josh Allen's games from that, from his time at uh, Wyoming, especially his final season there. And also looking at it from the stats. And I, th- I think what I and many others got wrong about Josh Allen was we were too much swayed by like the 5% of plays that were like, holy shit, what was that? <laughs> you know, he had a handful of plays every game where you think if you do that against an NFL defense, man, you're losing 10 out of 10 times but the baseline with josh allen was he was good like most of the plays he ran the offense and executed it and it looked good and there were also a handful of plays every game that were spectacular and so i think that's what we collectively got wrong about josh allen was putting too much emphasis on the worst of it because man there were some really dumb plays and every so often he still shows that he has it in in him to do that but for the most part, the Bills were able to coach that out of him. And I think if we looked at him as a prospect differently, we would have realized, okay, yeah, this these are terrible, but we can coach a few terrible plays out of somebody. It's the baseline that you have to, that, that you should be more worried about or more excited about, in which case was the case with Josh Allen. The baseline was pretty good. There was a handful of spectacular, a handful of really bad. We should have been more open to the idea that that was fixable. And so I think that was the big mistake that I and many others made with Josh Allen. Looking at Malik Willis last year and with Anthony Richardson, not quite to the same degree as Malik Willis, but I think it falls he's much closer to Willis than Allen in the sense that on a play-by-play basis, he's bad. He's making mistakes on almost every play, it feels like, as far as not seeing something, tucking the ball and running too early not seeing a defend not seeing a linebacker who's dropping coverage and throwing it right at his face he's making those types of plays on a really really consistent basis and i i really think he was a huge reason why florida was bad last year it was because of richardson and that that was, certainly was not the case with josh allen at wyoming wyoming was not good but they were decent because josh allen was pretty good and it was the complete opposite at Florida. Richardson's a mess on a play-by-play basis. And it's really the handful of spectacular plays that are why we're even having the discussion about him in the first round. And so 
that that's, I think, a big reason why Josh Allen ultimately did go in the top 10 and why there were teams that were high in him and why it worked out really well for Buffalo. Whereas with Richardson, you're not trying to fix a handful of bad plays for a game. You're trying to mold him into a quarterback because right now all you got are tools. And so I, I think that's why he's much more likely to fall, whereas Josh Allen didn't and why he's just a riskier overall player. Yeah, I mean, Richardson's going to have to have the almost Lamar Jackson sense treatment, but you're going to have to swerve into what he is and not – we don't see rational coaching to the degree that we believe exists in the NFL. You go back to Josh Allen like as a prospect. Uh, Josh Allen was great in the same regard, though, as you know, Anthony Richardson at, you know, like I said, sack avoidance was way plus. And that's the difference between Richardson and Will Levis. And Will Levis is getting all of this steam now. Will Levis is – unjustifiably I think a, a worse draft pick than Anthony Richardson at any pick you take them at uh, because of the negative plays like you can't these things are translatable and they're sticky when they go to the NFL he's historically one of the worst quarterbacks to ever come out of college in taking sacks and turning pressures into sacks and then you have the turnovers that compound that matter so I mean he I think is a lot more of a project than Anthony Richardson is from a stance of you know looking at it analytically like the things that Will Levis has that he does bad are very translatable and they're hard to correct in the NFL and that very few guys have done it. Um, we're hoping that, you know, Justin Fields can do it, but uh, it, we're still on the fence there still too. But like, man, Josh Allen was, was really good. When you go back in hindsight, we didn't have all this stuff with Josh Allen, right? Like you think of how far we've come in college data and stuff that exists. And you can go back and look at this stuff and you're like, man, Josh Allen was nowhere near as bad as a prospect. As I remember the conversation being around him. Like when you look at all these, all these objective markers, but Will Levis stands out in the other direction by far. Um, so I think it's, it's absolutely crazy. That we got to this point where now he's flirting with these odds and that he's locked in to go in the top five. Yeah. It's one of the things where like Will Levis looks like he should be a quarterback and kind of that's what I, some teams still end up wanting from, from the guy, a guy who was going to look the part more than uh, has been playing it uh, at this point. So, uh, before we like get you know too far down the weeds in uh, into a you know a quarterback uh, prospect, the podcast that we've already done, um, Houston at number two, we've kind of talked about how it, it does seem likely they aren't going to be taking a quarterback at, at number two. The there has been some idea that if they are going to take a quarterback, it might be by passing one at two, trading up from 12. If there is a fall into like a if a Levis is still there around you know the the back end of the top, um, you know, the top 10, that seems absolutely insane to me, right? Like, if there's a quarterback you are willing to hit your wagon to and there's not going to be much of a difference between like the expectations of a guy at number two and a guy at number 10 um right so it just kind of seems insane to me that there would be a guy they would not like to use their number two pick on but would potentially want from like to jump from 12 to 7 which is probably using more draft capital anyway uh to be doing that to jump up and grab a, a type of levis is that a is that something you see as possible for Houston? Um, even if I think we're all in agreement, that would be a, just an asinine idea. I would be surprised. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, mostly for the reasons that you laid out. 
if it does happen, what, what might lead them to make that decision? First of all, the difference in the defensive player that you're getting at two and number 12 is huge. There's just, whether it's, you know, whether like Will Anderson or Tyree Wilson, the gap between that and say they want to address that position and then take Miles that's, Murphy, that, that's, that's a gap. basically it, right? Because we'll, we'll get to the, the defensive players uh, in a little bit, but it's basically, you're just missing out on one of those guys because we don't really expect the other defensive players to be going in. So it's really, you want, you... It, and that makes sense, but let's say, is that, are you really that much more excited and like tunnel visioned on getting a Will Anderson over, like, are you more scared of potentially missing out on Will Anderson or potentially missing out on the quarterback, right? Which is kind of where that puts them. And that as much as like, we might like a Will Anderson or a Tyree Wilson, that still seems like a, a very big gamble to take. Yeah, so I will say that philosophically, I'm on your side of this debate, but I'll try to put myself in their shoes and try to explain what they might be thinking and why they might go that route. First of all, like I said, big gap in the defensive players. You've got a defensive-minded head coach. You've got a GM who comes from New England. They obviously value defense to a high degree too. So they're probably valuing the defensive side a little bit more than we might if we were in charge. So that's part of the equation. The other thing is that it's been reported that they've talked to teams about trading the second overall pick. They've made some phone calls already. We don't necessarily know why. Maybe that's, I mean, those conversations happen every year at every pick. Maybe that's all it is. But through those conversations, maybe they learned nobody wants the second overall pick. Maybe maybe all of these quarterbacks are going to fall. Maybe they're not going to talk to the Colts, obviously. But maybe they've also talked to the Raiders, the Titans. They, I'm sure they've called the Lions and the Falcons just to check in. Maybe they all said, nah. We're not, we don't even need to have a conversation about that. And so the Texans are thinking, geez, the quarterbacks are going to fall. And so now they think, okay, we can take the best defensive player at number two. And then maybe just to be safe, we can trade up, up a couple picks and we can get the quarterback that we want. That could be a route that they go. And the other, the third part of this equation is the offensive coaching, or I guess the whole coaching staff, but in this case, particularly important, the offensive coaching staff coming from San Francisco they have probably an, an undue confidence in their ability to plug in anybody and run their offense, right? Because that's how it's worked in San Francisco over the past few years is you just put somebody back there and the offense is going to do just fine. And so they, pro- they may also believe they may be one of the few teams that actually is okay with a couple of quarterbacks. So they may look at Levis and Stroud and say, yeah, we kind of think either one of those guys is going to work in our offense. And based on the the talent of those guys, they're, the fact that they're decent athletes, you could make a case that either one of them would do well in that type of offense. So maybe they say, okay, we like both of those guys. Maybe the Colts take one of them. But then if we can you know, jump up and we'll get the next guy a little bit later on, that way we get the best defensive player and a quarterback that we like. So like I said, philosophically, I am in agreement. But that could be the thought process that they're having or conversations that they're having as how, as they approach this. Yeah, it, it that seems like one of the, uh, kind of the the pivot points of the draft, I guess, to come at, at number two, right? Because we we just don't really know. It kind of and to to get to this point, it's not that they don't like quarterbacks. It seems like it's been heavily reported that they like Bryce Young, uh, who was very clearly like their their number one by a wide margin. It might not be as big 
on the, the rest of the quarterbacks uh, in this class, which does make for a, a very interesting dynamic of what they do at the number two pick. So let's get into some of these defensive players because it's uh, a side of the ball that we haven't discussed uh, a lot on, on this podcast and heading into the draft. We've we kind of all our positional previews have been on, you know, the, the fantasy positions because those are uh, a lot more fun to talk about uh, in a sense. So as you look at uh, the top of uh, this draft, it seems like we have a tier of two pretty good edge rushers, two pretty good corners, and then it kind of opens up a, a little bit from there. Is that kind of your sense on one, your evaluation of these guys, and two, that's kind of how the, the draft will unfold a bit? Yeah, it seems like that's the way it's unfolded. Certainly, I agree with the consensus on the pass rushers. They're different, though, which makes for an interesting conversation for each team, and that Will Anderson is much more of um, an athlete who's going to win with speed, probably better playing standing up, whereas um, Tyree Wilson, you know, he's like the tall, lanky end who's, you know, probably better off playing in, as an end in a 4-3 scheme, maybe even could be an end in a, in a three-man front, Maybe he's athletic enough to stand up in a three in a three man front. Who knows? He's offers a little bit more flexibility. I think that's one of the reasons why we've heard some rumors about the fact that Tyree Wilson is the number one defensive guy or the number one edge rusher, at least on some teams board, because not only does he give you a little bit more flexibility because he's bigger. And obviously that does matter, especially to some GMs as you're bringing coaches in and out. You can't necessarily bank on the scheme you're running right now to be the scheme that that player is playing in three years from now. So that scheme flexibility is a little bit more important and you probably get that a little bit more with Tyree Wilson than you do with Will Anderson. Also with Will Anderson, like the fact that's been brought up a lot is that the, these Alabama players are are sometimes a little bit overrated because they're almost like too well coached at Alabama and that they're coming into the league as these fully formed, fully formed NFL players which is great as a rookie, but then maybe they don't have the same ceiling. So someone like Tyree Wilson, it's a little bit easier to see his growth over the past few years and continue to project continued growth. So that could be another, another thing that teams are looking at there. But, you know, regardless of where they go, I see most likely both of those guys going in the top five picks unless we get, unless we're shocked by how many teams like quarterbacks near the top. I think those guys come off the board early with the cornerbacks. I'm not necessarily in agreement with the consensus that there are two guys and then a drop off. I, I like a lot of cornerbacks in this class. I think it's a deep class at the top and deep into day three. I think it's a strong class, but it does seem like the consensus around the league is that Devin Witherspoon from Illinois has separated himself as the top guy in most boards and Christian Gonzalez is pretty close right there with him. Both of them likely top 10 picks. I think likely top eight picks for both of them. Just when you look at team needs, because you've got, Lions, Raiders, Falcons at six, seven, eight, who all could very easily justify a cornerback. So with there being two guys that have probably separated themselves, I think it's a pretty safe bet that they come off the board in that range. And we also have to factor in the Cardinals too, since they're trying to trade down. Very unlikely they take a quarterback if they stay at three. But you know, let's say the Raiders want a quarterback and they trade up and suddenly the Cardinals are at seven, then they're certainly going to be considering the cornerbacks. That debate between Witherspoon and Gonzalez has surprised me, though, because I thought as we got closer and closer to the draft, Gonzalez would separate himself because Witherspoon comes from Illinois where Brett Bielema brought a very man-heavy defense, basically brought a lot of what the Patriots do, and they were the most man-heavy college team in uh, 
in college football last year. And so he's coming into the league with a lot of experience in man coverage and did really well. He was making the way that he was making plays on the ball in a man coverage scheme, I think is one of the reasons why teams are so confident with him. Cause obviously that tends to decrease the rate at which you're pl making plays on the ball. If you're in man coverage and he was still able to be productive in that area. So that's one of the reasons why teams like him, but the book on Gonzalez is that he's also very physical He's a little bit bigger, a little bit longer than Witherspoon, and that he's probably best suited for playing in a press man scheme as well, even though he didn't do it as often as Witherspoon did in college. That's probably where he fits best. So because Gonzalez is younger, a little bit longer, and has sort of the same scheme fit likely as Witherspoon, I thought he would separate himself. So that is really interesting to me that Witherspoon has uh, seemingly separated himself as the top quarterback on the board, and it just makes me wonder, like, what it – what don't we know about Gonzalez? Are the team meetings not going well? Is there some sort of injury report that we've that we just have never heard about? Because looking at all of the other factors would lead me to think that typically the NFL is going to prefer Gonzalez over Witherspoon. So I'm I'm a little bit curious as to what that means for Gonzalez on draft day. Yeah, that is interesting because you, I think we still solidly see Gonzalez as the the cornerback two. Uh, but it, early in the process, it seemed he was the the cornerback one, and that's kind of you know flipped uh, on a lot of just kind of the mocks and, and consensus big boards, uh, which is uh, it's certainly interesting. But like you said, corner is a position that is fairly deep, and I think we are going to see a, a fairly good run on those guys uh, potentially in. Uh, in the back part of the first round. Uh, I think when you look at guys like, you know, you have a, uh, a Joey Porter Jr. We have, uh, you know, potentially uh, an Emmanuel Forbes. Maybe he, maybe he's more of, you know, uh, a second round guy just because of, you know, his weight, but uh, we'll, we'll see some of these guys um, potentially go. And do you, do you think this is going to be a more defensive heavy back half of the first round? Because there are some more guys like the corners uh, and more guys like the, the edge rushers, uh, you know, Nolan Smith's probably going to be, you know, a, a top, 10 it seems uh, pick if we look at you know some of the odds and big boards um but we kind of look at some of those those other edge rushers and interior defenders uh does this seem like a, a heavier defensive back half of the first round i think so yeah and it's for a couple of reasons we already talked about the wide receivers with that being not quite as uh i guess it's relatively deep but not quite as top heavy as it is usually and this is a good cornerback class i think that it is going to be pretty we're going to see a run on those guys. We certainly could see a run on quarterback cornerbacks happen at some point because, you know, that is a position where teams are probably comfortable with, you know, five or six names. And so if we reach a point where, you know, four of them are off the board, you know, once that fourth guy comes off the board, maybe someone trades up to get the fifth guy, then someone trades up to get the next guy. Like that could definitely be a back half of the first round um, type of run. The one thing I would say, if I think it's going to happen, I'm certainly going to have quite a few cornerbacks in my mock draft. If we're surprised and it doesn't happen, it's because, like I said, this is also going to be a very good cornerback class on day two. There's a lot of guys. Like, I have Cam Smith from South Carolina as my number two cornerback on the board. I've got a bunch of guys really closely grouped together, but I have him pretty high. I love his ball production at South Carolina. Love that he's got good length, good testing numbers. Um, he played for Torian Gray, their defensive backs coach, who was at Virginia Tech for a long time when they were churning out guys from that secondary, like Brandon flowers, the fullers cam chancellor, like he's, so we, we feel confident in the coaching that he's got his teammate, Darius rush from South Carolina. He's also going to go on 
day two. Tyreek Stevenson from Miami is going to go on day two. Corey Trice from Purdue. Like there's a there's so much good cornerback talent that if we don't see that early run on cornerbacks, it could be because a team is on the board and they think, well, like this is sort of our last offensive lineman that we kind of like available here, but we've got five cornerbacks that we still like. We're going to get one of those guys on day two. We might see teams maybe adjust their board a little bit on the fly and take the neck, the, that last remaining guy they like at another position and sort of push that cornerback off a little bit. So that, that could be the reason if we're surprised by the fact that there's not a cornerback run and not a defensive heavy back half of the second round, it could be because those positions are so deep that they just love what's available to them on day two and would rather reach a little bit to get one of those last top tier guys at another position. Yeah, it'll, there's there's a lot of fun guys uh, in this class, and and it does seem that is uh, like it, it is uh, a lot of fun. Uh, we'll see. Like you said, you have you know the Cam Smith up there, um, the, the Emmanuel Forbes. I, I like him a lot. I think he's he's just good. Like I don't really care that he's 166 pounds. Like he played in the SEC. It didn't really bother him a little bit. The way he kind of plays the ball is not something that he gets pushed out of the way um, because of that size. And it's not like he's, you know, this isn't a, um, who is it? Uh, Traverius, uh, Traverius Hodges Tomlinson. Traverius Tomlinson, yeah. Who's like five, six or yeah. five, eight, um, it, you know, uh, who I like a lot and also has great ball skills, but you can be a little more concerned because of that size. So Emmanuel Forbes is still, you know, six foot six one. Um, so there's, there's still some size there. So uh, there is uh, a lot to like, I think in, in this cornerback group and, and probably one of the more fun groups uh, uh, in this class, I think probably, probably the deepest position really, if you go, you know, mm-hmm. top to bottom here. Uh, so let's, let's go with the, the other side. Oh, what is the kind of weakest positional group? Um, that kind of, if you're not getting some of these top guys might not have the same type of death on, uh, on a day two or day three, or even in the back half of the first round. Ooh, the weakest class. I mean, we kind of already talked about receivers. You could make a strong case for that because there's really, I, I think one top tier guy, some people might say there aren't any top tier guys. So you can make a strong case for that, but I'm okay with the depth. I think there's some good players, especially once you get into the third round. There's a lot of names that I'd be comfortable taking in the third round. Some people might say safety, but I'm actually kind of high on – I'm definitely higher than most in the safety class, so I won't say safety. I think it's offensive tackle because there's two – like I said, there's two left tackles, and they're probably coming off the board in the top 10, certainly within the top 15 picks. And then you've got a bunch of guys who – you could play him at tackle, but they're probably better suited for guard. Like Peter Skaronsky already mentioned, it sounds like most of the league views him as a guard. Darnell Wright, a lot of teams are going to view him as a right tackle, but he's probably not a left tackle, and some teams might view him as a guard as well. Even someone on the second round, if you push that decision to day two, someone like Matthew Bergeron from Syracuse, he's another guy that like, yeah, you, you could play him at right tackle, but teams are also going to probably view him as a guard. And then you've got these sort of like outlier guys mixed in there, like Dewan Jones from Ohio State, who is just a behemoth of a right tackle. Like he's going to have some success just by being a mountain that you have to run around. But then the question is, is that all he is? Is he just a guy who takes up space and makes it a little bit, but then struggles to keep pace with some of the NFL speed rushers? And 
I think you could say something similar about Anton Harrison from Oklahoma, who's another big guy. He's got length. He could probably play left tackle. Maybe you want to put him on the right side. But also coming from Oklahoma, that's sort of a unique offense. He's not going to be necessarily ready to pass block in an NFL offense right away and the length of time he's going to be asked to sustain those blocks. There's just so many questions. And with so many of those questions being, is he even a tackle? That I think that most of these teams are probably only going to have maybe three or four tackles on their board within the first three rounds of the draft. So I think that's one of the reasons why we've started to hear rumors that Paris Johnson could go very high and Roderick Jones shortly behind him because anybody who's within striking distance of those players, they're probably thinking like, not only can't we get it in the first round, if we don't get one of those two guys, we don't even like what's on the board in the second round. So I would, I would say offensive tackle is probably the weak link just because it is, uh, it's a it's a strange mix of players. There really isn't even those like high upside guys on day two like usual. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense for why there might be that run uh, that we kind of talked about heading forward. I think quarterback also you could potentially say right because there's not even it, what makes this class interesting and in that we have those four you know potentially five guys and, and maybe not if we do see the the fall of you know a Levis or a Richardson that we talked about I think that makes it harder for Hendon Hooker to sneak into the first round but uh if you look at guys on day two day three there's not even really you know the kind of high upside guy I think those guys are deciding to you know stay in college you know, take a fifth year um get some of that the NIL money and stay in then be you know a, a third fourth round pick uh, so I'm not even sure, like just kind of looking at the type of guys, there's not even the guy that like I would even like uh, coming into uh, some of those, you know, day two, day three type of things, which makes the quarterback class, I, th- I think, more interesting because there's not even that type of, you know, potential like career backup uh, kind of thing. It just it doesn't even feel like those guys are, are available. Um, so let's, let's round some things out. Uh, who is potentially, a, you know, a fringe round one guy or, or maybe like mostly mocked in round two that we could potentially see sneak into round one there, there seems to be like one of those guys every year obviously it was like really out of left field last year when it was Cole Strange but usually we see a guy that's kind of you know more mocked in round two uh, that kind of ends up being in round one yeah I guess I'll sort of answer this with a with two players because the one that I would have said maybe a week or two ago it sounds like he's starting to pick up steam is Will McDonald from Iowa State, the edge rusher. He did not have a very good year this past year, and so I think that's why he was down boards early on, but he was much better the previous year. And I think as we're getting closer and closer to the draft, it sounds like teams are really kind of enamored with some of his traits, and he's becoming more and more likely to go. So I, that's not that's probably not the best answer to that question, though, because it's, not, it's certainly not going to be a surprise like Cole Strange, because he will definitely be in some people's final mock drafts. Uh, over the next couple of days. If I were going to go for a Cole Strange type of player, though, somebody who won't be in anybody's mock draft but actually does have a chance to go, I think I would say Penn State safety Jair Brown. A couple reasons why I would say that. First being that this is a bad safety class. Um, like I said, I, I'm relatively high on a bunch of guys who could go on day two, so I don't think it's as bad as some people do, but that de- opinion is definitely out there. So it's definitely plausible to me that he's the number one safety on some boards, and that teams who like him might not see anybody else capable of playing that role. So someone in the back half of the first round, the Eagles, for example, who need to sort of overhaul their secondary a little bit in the coming years, could certainly 
reach for a safety. If there's a particular guy that they like, I could see them taking Jair Brown. The other reason why I think it's possible is because he's specifically an exceptional free safety. Like he's the center fielder you want out there who reads the quarterback exceptionally well, and he's going to make plays on the ball and be a difference maker in the deep secondary. Whereas the only other safety who's being mentioned in the first round, Brian Branch, that's, that's not him at all. He doesn't quite have that range. That hasn't really been what Alabama asked him to do. He's really viewed as a almost a slot cornerback for some teams are going to view him to play that position. He's been linked to Washington a lot for that reason, that he would slide in really well. They like to play uh, more physical slot corners. And so having a, like a, like a safety in that role is why certain teams are interested in Brian Branch. And that describes some of the other safeties that are ranked really high. I know early on in the process, Antonio Johnson from Texas A&M was sort of being thrown around as a possible first round safety. I think it's that's not going to happen at, at this point, but for similar reasons as Branch, big physical guy, sort of that safety linebacker almost. And he's not quite linebacker size, but he sort of plays that way. And Jair Brown kind of stands out as really the only guy in that top tier of safeties who's going to be that difference maker in the deep secondary. So if a team specifically wants that, I could see that being a reason why they would reach for someone like Jair Brown. Yeah, it's interesting. That's that's a guy I, I wanted to like coming in, and it's a guy whose film is pretty good. Someone who was a, a very big fan of Jaquan Brisker coming out last year. Um, you know, Brown kind of played that role a little bit as as he took over this past year. Uh, but then you kind of look at his combine, and I think that's kind of yeah. one of the reasons why this entire safety class. Um, but, it feels down on that because none of them had good combines. Uh, so this was a very slow safety class. Uh, you look at uh, Brown ran a, a four, six, five, uh, but a decent 10 yard split, but uh, not a great vert, uh, not a great broad. So not a lot of the, the explosiveness that you would kind of want from some, one of those guys who might be, you know, a sideline to sideline safety uh, when, you know, last year's class was, was pretty good. And that was a top heavy uh, deep class and it just kind of seems like it's not quite as much this year which is interesting so i'm i'm kind of split on on how i still feel about this safety class uh headed forward um let, let's round this up uh and and rich you can jump in here if you uh have some guys that uh, are going to stand out to you um who are your favorite guys uh in this class who are, are not going to go round one um, whether it's uh, day two, day three guys, uh, you know, walk us through some guys that we haven't really been talking about. Well, one of the guys is definitely Marvin Mims, wide receiver from Oklahoma. He's right. you, you fit right in here. <laughs> he's the, the sixth wide receiver on my board. I just feel he has everything. He has the testing numbers. If you look at uh, some of his advanced metrics, as far as his ability to produce after the catch, his catch rate on different different areas of the field it fits really well i think there's some skepticism about him mostly because like all of the receivers in this class basically he's on the smaller side but if they're all on the smaller side there's no reason uh, that he should fall behind some of the other guys who are even smaller and slower um so i, I definitely uh like marvin mims a lot i would also mention that running back zach charbonnet i'm relatively high on him um i like the fact that he's a little bit bigger and can definitely, I mean, he's definitely going to be a first and second down back for somebody, at least at an average level, I would say. Like, that's there's a pretty good floor with him. But he was asked to play a role in the passing game at UCLA and to have a bigger guy 
who's at least capable in the passing game, that can be a huge asset. It just sort of like opens up your options when he's out on the field, as opposed to, you know, sometimes teams have that early down back and then they have to bring in the pass catcher. If you kind of can always have a pass catcher out on the field, regardless of it's, if it's your early down back or your third down back, I think that's a huge asset. So I think he, he could be a really nice day to pick from somebody and then to throw, to throw out a name a little bit further, um, a little bit further down on the board, uh, Brenton Strange, the tight end from Penn State. He, I think they misused him at Penn State because the tight end just doesn't play a big role in that offense, and they kind of want Pat Freermuth as a tight end. And Brenton Strange is, he probably would have been better suited if he were asked to do like what Dalton Kincaid was doing at Utah and playing more of a role in the passing game. I think he, he doesn't have exceptional testing numbers or anything, but he's a pretty good athlete, and I think he wasn't really able to showcase that all at Penn state. So he's probably more like a third or fourth rounder, but in a deep tight end class, he could be someone who emerges as a pretty good playmaker early on and really exceeds what he was able to do just because he wasn't asked to do everything he was capable of in his offense. Yeah, that's interesting. We didn't even uh, get to him on the, the receiver and tight end show. So, and that kind of shows this tight end class that we didn't really talk about it today, yeah. uh, you know, fairly deep. Um, and that's one of those where we'll see, you know, two guys probably taken in the, the first round, potentially a third. Um, but there's guys that are going to be available a day, two or three. Um, one guy I was hoping you would bring up, uh, you see Abdullah from oh yeah Louisville. i should have mentioned him i, yes. I think the, i think we are the two people outside of the abdullah family um who are <laughs> highest on on him and he's just he's he's a good football player and i think that's getting overlooked a little bit he's on the smaller side um you know he was in edge rusher for louisville uh but he weighs about you know what 238 um, so it's all on that smaller side, but he, you know, wins with his quickness. He rushed the passer on about 78% of his snaps. So kind of has that ability to, to drop back. You know, we don't want to give out like a Hassan Reddick comp, but like that, that's the type of role, right? He, like wins with the speed, uh, can use his undersized ability to still get to the passer. One of the highest pressure rates uh, in this draft class. Um, he's consistently in the backfield, can drop back uh, in coverage. Just a useful football player who has plus athleticism. He tested quite well at the combine for the things that he did do. Uh, and I just continue to be surprised that he's not even talked about as like a day two or a, uh, or a round two or three guy. Uh, and he's more like a, it seems like a, a fifth round guy kind of at best. And that seems very strange to me because he, he stacks up really well with some of these other guys who are going to be going ahead of him. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad you mentioned him because that's the correct answer. He just <laughs> slipped my mind momentarily, but that's definitely the guy I'm higher on than almost everybody. And like you said, I think the reason why is because he's smaller and he played mostly as an edge at Louisville. And so teams are looking at him as like, you know, he's too small to play an edge. Like how could we take him that high? But look at him on the snaps where he's doing linebacker things and he looks like a linebacker. He fits in perfectly with all the other linebackers that are near the top of this class. And then look at him when he's doing edge-like things, and you actually don't notice that he's small. So I think if you plug him in as sort of a hybrid guy where, you know, depending on the alignment that you're in, you're asking him to do different things, I think he's certainly capable of doing both because he looks good rushing the passer, even when he's, you know, even when they're not blitzing, even when he's, you know, just one of four guys out there, he's 
going up against much longer offensive tackles and winning. And then when he's doing linebacker stuff, you know, he played defensive back a little bit in high school. And so that's, you can certainly see that in the way that he plays in coverage. So the fact that he can do a little bit of both, it doesn't concern me that he is sort of a tweener because, you know, if, as long as he lands with the right coaching staff, having a guy who can do both, it doesn't matter if you're not the perfect dimensions for either position, that versatility is huge. There we go. Just running through Salon. 14 and a half tackles for loss. That's one of the highest in class. 50 pressures, uh, 30 hits, 19.3% pressure rate, a hit on 11.6% of his pass rushes. It's, it's great. And obviously, like, he does have some of those angles, and he's, you know, you're using him in that way where he is getting, you know, uh, some free rushes, and, and but still getting to the quarterback for forced fumbles. And, like, he, because he comes in so quick, uh, that, ends up like knocking the ball loose six passes defense uh he had that crazy interception uh running with a uh running back on on a wheel um like there's there's just stuff all all over his tape that just stands out he's uh just just a good player um someone draft you see that's that's the takeaway uh (laughs) from this um so yeah uh i think there we go that's a fairly deep and uh and full look at uh, what we can be uh, expecting from uh, this class. Uh, the three of us will be uh, doing some, some drafts uh, recap things as uh, it happens uh, on, on Thursday night. Uh, we'll have uh, some written things. We'll have some videos that will be uh, popping up. You guys can all uh, take a look uh, for that on, on our socials and, and on the website. Obviously, uh, our Ryan has been doing all of the the tracking of uh, a lot of draft rumors that'll be going up through the week. Uh, he's been doing uh, his mock draft weekly. Uh, last one comes out Thursday morning. Yep, that Thursday way, morning, final we'll one. The, final the big final board one. will come out Wednesday morning. All right, final final big board. Uh, obviously, Ryan does a uh, great work on the big board, also where he's putting in you know his uh, evaluations, and then uh, to be able to do that, and also you know figure out what teams are, are thinking with some of these box. Uh, so Wednesday big board, Thursday final mock. Uh, we'll be here uh, Thursday night. I believe the, the three of us will be doing a, a recap podcast for for round one, and then uh, a lot of other stuff uh, throughout the weekend. So, guess we're, we're here. Uh, we did it. This is our, our final prep, uh, and the draft is uh, right around the corner. So, again, you can read all of our work on uh, Sharp Football uh, Analysis uh, com, uh, and uh, we will be back uh, with you shortly. So, thank you guys for listening, and we will talk to you again soon.